Welcome to the Center for Grassland Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Margo McKendry, Program Coordinator for the Center. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Dr. Kay Kotis, President of Prairie Legacy in Western Nebraska. Prairie Legacy provides, among other things, botanical and environmental consulting services. Dr. Kotis, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, it's good to be with you. Thank you for inviting me. In a recent article that you wrote, you talked about Nebraska tall grass prairie being critically imperiled. Can you talk to us about what makes tall grass prairies imperiled, please? Well, certainly. Um, and the Nebraska's Natural Heritage Program has listed tall grass prairie in Nebraska as critically imperiled. And pretty much in lay terms, it means there just isn't much of it left, um, between 1% and 2% by most accounts. This ecosystem has formed these deep, rich soils called mollusols, and these soils are only found under grasslands. They contain a large amount of organic components that are responsible for removing carbon from the air and storing it in the ground and for a diversity of organisms. And it's also the best soil for agriculture. And for that reason, most of it was plowed under since the 1800s. And that's why tall grass prairie is so rare. So it's been converted to farmland, acreages, and of course, cities and roads. It's home to over 500 plant species and 300 migratory and resident birds, um, over 70 reptiles and mammals, and as many as 728 specialist invertebrate species. So they depend on tall grass prairie and tall grass prairie alone. So it's no wonder we hear that we're trying to save birds and mammals and pollinators when their habitat is becoming so rare. Where are the remnant patches? Who owns them and why do they still exist? Most of what's left of tall grass prairie is in these small remnant patches. Most of them are less than 80 acres in size. Originally, tall grass prairie covered the eastern third of the state. Our most well-known and largest patches are in places like Spring Creek Audubon Center and at Nine Mile Prairie um, is held by the university. But most of the rest of these patches are very small and they're in private ownership. Uh, just think about our road system in Nebraska. It's laid out in a grid system where it's difficult to find any patch of ground that's more than a half a mile from a road on either side. So where there's been some interest in creating a registry of these prairies, there's no such registry in existence at this time. So no one can just send you to a map and say, there's where you're going to find the nearest uh, remnant prairie. There's some uh, organizations like Wachiska Audubon Society that has preserved some of these prairies and they take tours on those and show you where those are. But they still exist chiefly for one of three reasons. Either one, they're not close to an expanding urban center where they would just be gobbled up by urban development. Or two, they're not easy to farm. In other words, they're too wet or too hilly. They're on eroding or poor soils or they're not easy to get equipment across. And as such, they're mostly used for rangeland or hayland. And third, they could be owned by people who really understand their true value and have protected them from disturbance and maybe an easement or just um, in their family heritage. When you're collecting seeds, how many different species do you kind of collect from? One of the things we try to do, our major business model, is to preserve 
what is left of the genetic integrity of these remnant prairies. For instance, we will go out to a prairie and collect whatever is dominant at that prairie. We'll leave as much behind as we can and take some as well. So these tiny bits of prairie can make a really big impact. When we go out and collect, we can collect as many as 200 species each year from these remnant prairies. Uh, each prairie depends on what the most dominant species are or the time of year we're there. So we try to replant those uh, seeds into seed plots and then expand the availability of that seed in seed plots. And that way we're keeping those early generation seeds with their genetic integrity intact um, so that we can replant those to reestablish prairie. Okay, very good. Now, there are other sources of native plant seeds that are grown and sold commercially at relatively large quantities. How would someone interested in planting or even establishing a grassland of native species make a decision about purchasing seed from Prairie Legacy versus a large native seed retailer? Well, first let me address what is commercially available. It depends on your definition of native. If you're thinking or talking about native from any state in North America, then yes, there are plenty of sources for most species. So if you want seed from Pennsylvania or Utah or Minnesota or even Canada, then you can find most common species. However, if you're interested in native seed um, that is genetically appropriate to eastern Nebraska tallgrass prairie, then you'll have a lot of difficulty finding seed in any quantity. NRCS programs, for instance, prefer that producers use seed from within 150 miles of a project. It is that lack of availability for local ecotype seed that led to my business model. So collecting seed from remnant prairies in order to protect that genetic integrity of local ecosystems is what we're trying to do. If we're going to protect biodiversity of tallgrass prairie, its soil biome, and the invertebrates and the animals it supports, we need to try to plant seed from within a couple hundred miles if we can. The reason for this is a whole nother presentation, but in short, it's that these plants and animals evolve together and are in sync by seasons and by the unique interconnections that they have developed. So I mentioned that there are somewhere over 700 species of invertebrates that are dependent specifically on the species native to this region, tallgrass prairie. The second part of your question, you would be correct, our company is small by most standards. However, I can say that we have the largest available selection of local ecotype drill-ready seed in Nebraska. So really the decision about what seed to use is what is available. If you're able to find seed from a, an appropriate local source where your project is, then anywhere you can get it is great. If you can't find it, by all means, still recreate that prairie and get that biome started and find the seed where you can. So there really is some thought that should be put into seeding, depending what you're hoping the outcome will be as far as insects and birds and, and other animals in the area. So that's good. That's good information to know. Also in the article that you wrote, you mentioned Generation Zero when describing seeds. Can you talk to us about what Generation Zero means? Um, certainly, Generation Zero describes uh, the seed that's coming from the wild, so from those remnant prairies. 
it's ideal for planting into seed plots because the genetic makeup of this seed has been directed by the years of living among the native soil biome and the native flora and fauna and the native climate into which we are eventually going to plant that progeny. So after these plots have run their course, three to four years on average, this generation zero seed is used again to replant the seed plot. And what determines when a plot has run its course? Even though most of these plants are perennials that we're growing, they're still bloom and grow after three or four years. They start to decrease in size and their reproductive capacity decreases. Um, so the plot needs to be renewed with new plants because that production decreases. But it also, uh, when we regenerate it, keeps the seed from developing new traits that would favor its life um, in the seed plot rather than in the prairie ecosystem that it originally came from. What new traits might develop and do you at Prairie Legacy do research to determine um, if a plant does develop new traits? Um, even if it still remained productive, the plants would very quickly start to get used to its cushy position in an environment with little competition for water and resources that makes its progeny less genetically fit to compete in its original native location. So they start to become domesticated, if you will. So they may have changes in their defensive traits against insects, or you know, they may be less adapt to drought conditions, for instance. We don't do research of these traits, nor do we leave the plants in the field long enough to develop those traits. Um, we'd have to replant the seed we produce for a few generations in order to be able to see many of those things happening. So we rely on the scientific literature that already exists, and there is plenty of literature on that sort of thing. You start collecting around May, and you go through about October or so, but you have a lot of interesting um, ways to collect and also clean the seeds that you harvest. Can you talk a little bit about that? When we first started this, in the beginning, we were using um, just hand collecting everything and using a kitchen blender to, to sort the seed or to um, grind up the, the pods so that we could extract the seed. At this point, we accomplish it in very many ways. I mean, we have, um, I use a combine in some instances. I use something we call the Reaper, which was a machine that was developed by a young man in, in Missouri that we found. And we use everything from hedge trimmers to, you know, just uh, sickle scythes and things like that to harvest. Um, we use um, brushes and things like that as well. And then to clean it, we will use anything from a kitchen blender to a wood chipper to a lawnmower. I mean, we literally use just about anything we can to crush up those pods. Um, but now we use a combine, a thresher, and one of the, the most useful tools I found is a hammer mill. But then once we get that seed ground up or the pods and things ground up um, so that we can extract the seed. Then we use fanning mills to extract um, the seed from that. And we also use seed blowers and seed aspirators and a lot of different things to do that. Sounds like quite a process, actually. So when you're collecting, is all of this done by Prairie Legacy staff? Or do you have volunteers that assist and and if so, how could someone with an interest in this become involved? The planting, production, harvesting, and cleaning is all done by staff. 
Um, and this is done at, at my farm, which is uh, a home my great-great-grandfather settled over 160 years ago. And we have occasionally have volunteers. I would sincerely welcome more volunteers. We've had former interns who have come back to help for a day or so. Yeah, somebody who wants to get involved could certainly go to my website and send a contact form. Um, call me on the phone. The phone number's um, on our website as well. And we just love to have visitors uh, to share what's going on out here. It's pretty unique in Nebraska, the way we're doing this. And we just really enjoy having people come out and just to visit, even if they don't want to volunteer. Great. And you mentioned you had internship opportunities. Um, what would your interns be doing? And are they there for um, a short period of time or an entire summer, let's say? Um, yeah, we do have internships every year. Um, we're still recruiting for interns this year. So anybody um, who is interested in that can also find um, applications on the website. Um, we do have interns. I've had interns anywhere from January through November. I mean, anytime that someone's schedule fits, that's what when we have them out here. So I mean, we are busy all year round with the harvesting and the cleaning. And we start planting in uh, January. Um, of course, we have to stratify a lot of the seed that we do plant. Um, so we grow them inside in a grow room for a couple of months. And then we heat up the greenhouse in March and move everything out to the greenhouse. And from there, we sell plants and we plant our seed plots and, you know, keep those seed plots up and then start harvesting, like I said, as early as May, our earliest things start to become ready to harvest. So lots going on out here. Um, and we've even had interns helping um, with our survey work and that sort of thing. So oh, perfect. Great. Now, what are some of the challenges associated with what you're doing and especially seed gathering? Oh, wow. <laughs> There are some challenges, um, especially so with the seed gathering in particular. The biggest challenge is getting there when there is seed, when it's ripe, and before the remnant prairie has been uh, utilized for other things. For instance, and I mentioned the reasons why there are remnant prairies still here. One of the biggest is because it's used for grazing. So if these Prairies are heavily grazed. There won't be seed to collect right after they've been grazed. Um, and lots of heavy spring grazing and spraying. Often the pastures have been sprayed to remove forbs. There's been some misinformation, I think I would say, that forbs are not valuable for grazing animals. They do provide some mineral input to their diet. But there's often pastures have been sprayed. And so these early spring species are particularly rare and very hard to find. And in addition, um, there are often management practices that support haying. So seed is often destroyed before it ripens. Um, in other words, it's, it's cut for hay in mid-July or August, just when the really good harvest season starts. So finding those prairies that haven't been hayed or haven't been overgrazed is really difficult, even among our small amounts of remnant prairie. So having a lot of prairie remnants from which to collect helps keep those seed uh, supplies available for us. Now, 
if someone was interested in uh, Remnant Prairie and managing it, what would your recommendations to them be? Well, whether you're managing it for grazing or haying or seed production, we encourage those who have access to Remnant Prairie to preserve it, allow it to rest occasionally. Um, in some cases, you may need to reseed or overseed parts of it. If you have seed production as, you, as your goal, you really must allow it to produce seed. And so you have to forego grazing or haying in some instances. And we also recommend occasional burning if your prairie is in a location where that can be done. I realize some are very close to city areas and it's difficult to get a burn permit or maybe dangerous based on the number of homes in the area. But if you can burn it, that does help in some cases to reduce cool season grasses or depending on the time of year, you may want to reduce some of the warm season grasses in order to keep those forbs regenerating. Yeah, if you think you have species of interest, be sure to contact us and we'll be, we would really love to help you um, assess it and preserve it. Now, Prairie Legacy has been involved in several projects um, like vegetation monitoring or baseline surveys that have assisted in the management of land. So can you tell us a little bit about those projects and how management decisions may have changed? Um, sure. Uh, so we're involved in, in a lot of different and varied projects. So one of those, for instance, would be the Platte River Recovery Implementation Project. That's a mouthful. Um, but it's basically um, a project that preserves habitat on the Platte River um, for different species. So we, for that project, we designed a vegetation monitoring um, um, program where we do repetitive data collection to show land managers how their activities have changed the dominance of certain species over time. So knowing the progression of the species change over time can help those land managers see the impact of, say, grazing pressure or haying activity or a lack of activity and then set their future goals based on the desired outcome and based on what they have seen their management practices do in the past. So we've also helped organizations whose goal it is to preserve prairie remnants through the use of easements in order to monitor activities there. And we've conducted vegetation studies on both public and private lands to determine whether control of exotic species was necessary and whether their methods are being successful in control of those uh, species. We've also helped collect data for research projects with the university and with other entities that are seeking to determine the most successful methods of prairie planting or restoration. So, you know, determining which type of seed mix or which method of planting has done the best for them. And we've also provide help with seed selection for various prairie types. We've done seed production surveys for waterfowl habitat so that, you know, managers can determine, you know, how much flooding they want or that sort of thing to determine what species are providing habitat there. And on several occasions, we've delineated habitat for threatened and endangered plant species. And, and all of these data points eventually help managers make the next decision on what to do with their land. 
This has all been really interesting, and um, it's easy to tell that Prairie Legacy is doing more than planting and collecting seeds, so this is great. Thank you. Now, before we get ready to end, um, I did notice on your website that you had some really good information, a step-by-step -step plan uh, on how to plant a prairie with seeding and collect seeds. So if you could please provide your web address and then also any other contact information, phone or email. Um, that way folks listening could go ahead and maybe get hold of you if they have additional questions. Yep, certainly. So our website is at prairielegacyinc.com. Um, and so we have email address at info at prairielegacyinc.com or you can email us also at prairielegacy at gmail.com or you can fill out a contact form on the website. The phone number here is 402-310-8167. So lots of ways to get in touch with us. If you're interested in learning more about creating or enhancing prairie habitat, we certainly welcome your questions. Um, we actually have um, on our website a questionnaire you can fill out if you want more information about your prairie, for instance. And you can sign up to follow our recreating prairie webinar series that's going to begin in late March. So um, do check out our event calendar or sign up for our catalog or newsletter if you're so inclined. Well, Dr. Kodis, thank you again. I appreciate you taking time to chat with me today. Dr. Kodis's article, Stretching Prairie Remnant, will appear in the Center's March newsletter. And to read it and other stories, go to grassland.unl.edu. Thank you for listening.